What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Chris Long, a two-time Super Bowl champion, podcast host, and legendary philanthropist. In this conversation, we discuss getting picked second overall in the NFL draft, the difference between winning Super Bowls in New England and Philadelphia, when he knew it was time to retire, the difficulties of starting a media business, the impact that his foundation has had on Eastern Africa, and my trip to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. This was an awesome episode, and Chris is a fantastic human, so I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. But first, let's run through our sponsors. First up is Whoop, the 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself through a hard workout or if you should skip the gym and rest. You can wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their smart clothing garments called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone and automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go before your run anymore. I've tried virtually every wearable on the market today. The Apple Watch, the Fitbit, the Garmin, the Whoop, and others. And Whoop is by far the best. It's super accurate and has the most advanced data, and I literally wear it 24-7. But here's the best part. Whoop is offering 15% off their all-new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com and enter Joe, J-O-E, to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Optimize your performance with the all-new Whoop 4.0 today. Next up is Public Rec, an apparel company that makes some of the most comfortable and stylish clothes in the world today. Are you looking to upgrade your baggy old sweatpants? It's time to check out Public Rec. Their best-selling all-day, everyday pant is the perfect combination of indoor comfort and outdoor style. Myself, along with athletes and thousands of others, are wearing these daily, and trust me, they live up to the hype. They are a more stylish alternative to sweatpants, but they are way more comfortable than jeans. Now your favorite lounge pants can also be your go-tos for work, happy hour, and the gym. After a year at home, they are definitely the pants you need, now that you need pants. Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now, they have an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Go to publicrec.com and use promo code HUDDLE, H-U-D-D-L-E, to receive 10% off. All right, let's get into today's episode, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, everyone, I have Chris Long here with me today. Chris, you're a busy man. I know you could be doing a million different things with your time, so I appreciate you for being here. How are you today? I'm great, man. It's a long time coming that we got on the mic together. I know you're, you're heading over to Tanzania and everything. This has been great getting to know you, Joe, so thank you for having me. Of course, man. I'm excited to talk about that. So let's start with the NFL first. I think yeah. most people are familiar kind of with your story and your background from football. You come from a football family, but you had an extremely successful career yourself. So let's start with like, I think you were the second overall pick, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right yep. What's that like? Was that like, was there any diminish off of that because you came from a football family or was it amazing still? Well, I think, you know, I can't think about it outside the context of growing up with like a real realistic look at what the NFL is and kind of what that means. And so, yeah, by the time I got there, maybe if I didn't have a dad who played 13 years, Hall of Famer, that whole thing, maybe it would have been a lot more like I made it, you know, but because of the knowledge of the game and kind of like what it means when you get picked high, like the type of team you're probably going to end up on, the type of challenges ahead for you as a player, like that anchored my kind of, I don't know, like blind excitement. And then on top of that, hey, it's not a big deal. My pops has done everything under the sun. So it, it gave me a good mindset 
and I needed it going into what I was about to kind of face there. Right after I got off the stage, I can remember being very excited and smiling. Everybody was joking in, in my group and yeah, champagne, the whole thing. Like that's where we were headed. And then I get on the elevator and I see these two big dudes that obviously play football. And I realized they were Rams players and they were just like stone cold serious and they were like get ready to work and it just kind of clicked in my head again that like this is going to be a, a job there's a lot of work to do i didn't accomplish anything the challenge is coming and i'm assuming that clicks if you're doing it on draft night that's much earlier than probably the average player realizes that that's kind of a top five pick i think everybody knows the challenge that it is being a top five pick you know everybody knows about the struggles of the teams that are picking these players everybody knows about the hit or miss success rate of the draft i think even if you have the right mindset there's a lot of talented players in the draft and it is such a crapshoot. you know there's some guys that might flame out because you think that maybe they're not focused and sometimes that's not completely the case you know it they might just not be good enough and that sort of thing so the mental challenges are there the physical challenges are there and then on top of the mental challenges in the building you have to manage hey all the noise outside because you're going to be the subject of a lot of noise a lot of times as, as teams struggle or succeed you look at the draft picks you look at kind of you need somebody to blame whether it's a coach or a gm these picks have to be ready for all that so they have to be great physically they have to be great mentally and the expectations are higher yeah, so I don't want to go through every year of your career, I guess, but like let's start at the beginning because I think the beginning and the end are probably the very unique scenarios yeah. where you're going to a really bad team. Obviously, you're getting picked second overall. I've been to St. Louis. I have family there. I oh really? I, uh, what 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 part are they in? Do you know? My, right in St. Louis. So my okay. brother's wife, her family's all from St. Louis. So mm -hmm. like. No problem at all with St. Louis, but it's not New York. It's yeah. not LA. It's not mm -hmm. Miami. It's different, right? So yeah. you're, I'm assuming, more focused on football than maybe some other people might be distracted. But like, talk to me about the challenges, I guess, of just going to a team that's like really bad. Well, listen, like, hey, I was locked in, but I still like to have fun and be a normal rookie in the NFL and hit a bar or a casino or something with your teammates. So there's trouble to find anywhere you yeah. play. And that's another thing is like a lot of people think, hey, I'm going to play in Jacksonville or something and there's nothing... Yeah, Joe Burrow into. was like, I'm going to Cincinnati, right? Oh, like, I I'm could in find Cincinnati. trouble in Cincinnati. Yeah, you could find trouble in Cincinnati. I could find, anybody could if you're looking hard enough. But like yeah. St. Louis was quieter. It was, it was like slower pace. And I kind of liked it, man. I, I really enjoyed my time there. I thought St. Louis is a very unique city. It's very, it's very Midwestern. Baseball is kind of king. They got a great hockey atmosphere. And like football was this thing that people were still kind of, I don't know, it had been, it's 2008. So it had been not a decade since, you know, the greatest show on turf and that sort of thing. So people's enthusiasm and patience had not waned to the point where it had hit like a boiling point situation, but it was rough. I mean, like we were bad early on two and 14, one and 15, two and 14, one and 15, like that kind of thing, you know, especially yeah. under my first couple coaches. And so, yeah, it, it was a great place. I loved it, but there were a lot of challenges and there were things that kind of shaped me for better or for worse and kind of made me who I am today. I mean, like it's the roll of a dice where you end up. And that's going to impact who you are as a player and a person the rest of your career. It just depends on what you make of it. Yeah, there were challenges, but it was an awesome place. I love the people there. What was the feeling? The team obviously ended up moving out of St. Louis, right? Yeah. So like, was there a feeling there for you? Were you a little like upset or had it worn off at that point? Well, so at that point, this was like six years into my career. And I had just come off of like a really great run as a player and then got hurt two years in a row. So I had like a four year great run, two years of just like dog shit, injured, playing injured, being a dumbass, like trying to play hero ball and that never works in the NFL. Like they're, they're gonna get you out of there. Anyways, it was year 
no, it was year eight for me. I think it was year year eight. It was 2015, and this is my second year. I just ended up on IR again, broke my leg, and I was like, I know I'm getting cut. It's just happening. You know, I'd come back to try to rush back late in the year and play, and I was dog shit. So I'm like, I know I'm getting released. I actually moved into a hotel for the last like couple months of the season because I just knew like either I was getting released or the team was maybe moving. It was a bizarre time. I mean, like and, all and this was happening. And why a hotel though? Was it because like your lease was up we or were, something? We were, trying to, we were trying to sell our place. Yeah, sell your house. Or yeah, yeah, we were trying to sell our place and because we knew I was going to probably be somewhere else next year, whether it was going to gotcha. be retirement or something else. And it was just a bizarre time. And the city was so, like you saw it coming and the city really didn't deserve it. I think St. Louis is a great sports town. And, you know, L.A. is great. That's where the team was before it was in St. Louis. So it's like one of these things like the Rams were the Cardinals or the Cardinals used to be in St. Louis. So like this is what happens. Teams move. But St. Louis didn't love the way it went down. And I totally get that. And as a former player, I do get bummed not to be able to go back to a place and say like this was home. Yeah, like Philly's home for me. And I love the Eagles. And like it's my, one of my favorite cities in the world. It's amazing. I wish I played there longer. But it does suck to not have a place like, hey, you were one of the guys there for eight years and you can't go home and take your kids to the games and that sort of thing. That part sucks. And I feel that for the fans as well. I mean, like during the Super Bowl, they'll like throw no Super Bowl watch parties. What I mean is they'll throw a watch party, but you can't watch. So it's like a Super Bowl party without the game. They're not over it and I don't blame them. Yeah, that sucks. I don't think I would be going to the party then. Yeah. Um, <laughs> something to do. Yeah, yeah, something to do. But it's if you hate football, I guess. Yeah, it's unfortunate. All right, so let's talk about the end of your career a little bit. You had a lot of success towards the end, for sure. You won two Super Bowls. I think, I don't know the exact stat, but I think you're one of a few players that won back-to-back -back yeah. years on different teams, yep. which is obviously impressive. Was winning Super Bowls probably the highlight of your career, you say? Yeah, I mean, like, there. when I think about the best times of my career, the times that I was in a lot of ways the happiest, ironically, it was playing with that D-line in St. Louis. A lot of guys are still out there making plays. Aaron Donald, Robert Quinn, you know, William Hayes, Eugene Sims, Michael Brockers, like Kendall Langford, the list goes on. We had a really stacked D-line, like 50-sack yeah. years, and a really tight group. We were very close. So it's funny, like, a lot of the best times were at the end of my career, but some of my most sacred and, like, favorite times were in the middle. In the Jeff Fisher years when I, you know, I was one place for a long time and you really got to know people but by the end of the deal i was ring chasing when i went to new england and that's different than in basketball you can't like you can barely pick the super bowl winner before the year came down to atlanta actually in new england and i ended up at halftime down 28-3 and i was like man you were so close <laughs> you were so close <laughs> to handicapping this thing correctly that first ring for me was about hey a relief makes my career worth it it's not a failure. You had individual success, but it's not a failure because you got to feel what winning feels like. It kind of validates things for me. And then when I left New England, I wanted to finish on my own terms. A lot of people were like, why the hell would you leave New England? I wanted to play in a scheme that was the best for the 34, 33 year old me. Like it was that simple. And I wanted to play for a team that winning was part of the deal. But Billy, I didn't think we were going to win a Super Bowl. I mean, no chance. And I thought we'd be a playoff team. I really thought we'd have a chance at that. But when LeGarrette and I went down there and Torrey Smith and a lot of those Patrick Robinson, some of those older veteran free agencies that their free agency hits that they had, it was just the right place at the right time. An awesome team that was in place, great young players, great depth, and then like veteran free agency kind of, hey, we checked that box, we hit it out of the park. And Howie and Joe Douglas did a really good job that year. 
I think most people try to, at some point, there's like this theme where people try to get sound bites about the Patriots and like yeah. if they're, uh, what the culture's like or things yeah. like that. But I don't necessarily want to do that. But I do think that from an outsider's perspective, right? I didn't, wasn't in these locker rooms. I have yeah. no idea. But you guys look like you had a hell of a lot more fun on the Eagles team than the Patriots team necessarily, right? Like I just remember Meek Mill yeah. pregame, everyone yeah. going crazy. No and I'm question. sure it's different when you're winning. But like, what were those two atmospheres? Were they different at all? Well, it's easy to conflate like kind of the brand of the teams with the experience yeah. in the locker room and like the city as well. Like Philly's an amazing city to play in. Like I'd play in Philly any day of the week over any other major East Coast city, any day of the week. And that includes Boston. And part of it is like Foxborough was far out of the city. So like, okay, from a living standpoint, like I live downtown in Philly. I don't live in a city. I've never lived in downtown in a city. This is cool as hell. I get to do a bunch of shit I've never done before. Even if I'm not like out partying, like it's the life, that kind of vibrant atmosphere, all the sports complexes are downtown. Okay, so Philly, check there. Locker room, both great locker rooms. That's the thing. New England had some fun dudes. Some of the most fun guys I ever played with was in New England. Like you think about Julian Edelman, Danny Amendola. Those guys are always having fun. Dante Hightower, who was like one of the best leaders I've ever been around, but we had fun. Rob Ninkovich, the whole group, Matthew Slater, some really good people that I'm still really close with today. So really the only way that it wasn't fun for me was the scheme. That was it. So I don't really come from New England thinking that place sucked. That place was awesome. Bill was awesome. The coaches were great. It's definitely a more like serious branded kind of operation part of the deal is you've had a quarterback there that's been under center since like early 2000s nothing amazes them they're kind of like hipsters you know what i mean like they're just yeah. like hey, that doesn't impress me they're just not impressed and i don't blame them they've been through so much they've done so much and now this team kind of is going to change because you have a new quarterback and a lot of new players and so it'll be interesting to see how that brand kind of changes or doesn't change with the fact that they're not that kind of old guard we've been here before a bunch and that came through in kind of the way they operate listen New England gets a lot of attention for being fun or not fun. You know what's not fun? One and 15, yeah, two and exactly. 14. You know, so there are things about New England that, that I didn't love, but that's like any place. And I could say that about Philly. You know, it's just that people aren't asking me those questions. People are always asking about New England. You know what I mean? Yeah. What happens in the locker room down 28 to three? Oh, man. That was a blur coming from the place that I came from winning after being down 14-3 is not kind of in the cards so you yeah. become conditioned it's like growing up as a kid like depends on the atmosphere you grew up in that dictates your personality at a halftime of a game down 28 to 3 we all have different kind of like do we believe do we not believe like i was on the low end of that spectrum because i've never seen something like that i've never had tom brady down 28-3 i've never I've never had a locker room full of guys that actually like, okay, we've done this before. And maybe they hadn't done exactly that before, but I think there were varying levels of confidence and I was on the lower end. And I remember guys being like, we're going to win this game. And I was like, well, I don't, why don't we get a stop or a score? That kind of thing, one play at a time. And Bill was so, all I remember about Bill, I barely remember anything he said, but I do remember how calm he was and kind of like, hey, this is like I'm giving any other halftime speech. And Bill was really good about knowing when to yell and when not to yell. Like, it's not like you always walk in and just flip the trash can over that. Like in the movies, like that doesn't work. You're going to actually have to execute. And I think that's the biggest thing we did in the second half was we just executed on defense. We got some turnovers. We made some key plays. They made mistakes. And a lot of it was like, hey, 
play our game and let them make the mistakes and we'll climb back in this thing. Yeah. So we're recording this the week after the Bucks just lost, right? Yeah. Were you watching that game? And I think everyone kind of felt the same of like, Hey, this is Tom Brady, right? Like this game yeah. isn't over yet. Yeah. Did you get that same feeling? Honestly, early on, I thought this is going to be a route because I had the Rams. I do think they're a better team right now than the Bucks. So like, although Tom has this comeback DNA, the Bucks team is not as great as it was when he walked in that door because of various factors. It's not the team that we beat Atlanta with. So for him to even make that comeback, it's damn near as impressive as coming back in the Super Bowl. Obviously, the stages are different, and he didn't come out with the win, especially considering all the mistakes that the Bucks made. They did not play an incredibly clean second half, and so they really depended on the Rams to make a ton of really bad mistakes, and the Rams have to do a better job of closing out games. They struggled against the Niners as well as this weekend, so... Brady, I hope that's not it. I think he deserves like a farewell year. I think he owes us that. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, and, and Brady, you talking, owe us a farewell tour. <laughs> exactly. It's our turn to be selfish. Yeah. But yeah, I was talking to someone about this the other day. And like when you look at his stats, they're unbelievable this past year. So yeah. it would be wild to see someone at his age with his resume with still putting up those numbers walk away. Similar to you, I selfishly hope that doesn't happen. He didn't play the best game on Sunday against the Rams, but what he did is he was moving well in the pocket. He looked healthier and younger than he did in New England his last year in New England. So to me, what do you see when you turn on the tape is just as important because, you know, we all know guys have racked up big numbers and kind of systems and that sort of thing. And like Tom yep. has great players, but when you watch the tape, it confirms the numbers. And I think watching Tom Brady, if he walks away at this point in his career, he will truly in the weirdest way, do both. He'll have the best longevity ever, but also leave playing the best of anybody ever. And I think that'd be an interesting kind of title to hold at that position. Yeah. Is there any amount of money that could get you to go play again? Or are you just oh, like... Oh, absolutely. <laughs> are you in shape to play or no? I mean, I'd need a couple weeks. Yeah. You know, this was probably the last fall that somebody could have called. Listen, it's so funny when you watch, because I, I almost came back right after I retired, because I retired because the Eagles picked somebody up because they thought I was getting old and yeah. probably not as dependable, even though I'd never missed anything. And then they bring somebody in and that kind of like kicks me off the sub package. So I'm like, well, there's no point for me here to just be a first and second down guy for 10, 15 snaps a game. So the guy gets hurt like right away, go figure. And so then I'm on the phone and like almost coming back and it just didn't happen. And from that point, I realized that although I'm probably healthy enough, young enough and that sort of thing, like you're always going to feel like you can come back and play. And that was really hard mentally to click back in even for a week or two and think about going back. I think the biggest thing that people don't think about when guys retire it's not the physical sometimes, it's the mental kind of shift in perspective. And it's really hard to describe to somebody who doesn't play because when you retire for the first time, you let your guard down for the first time in however many years that you've been playing football, your entire life. And you're like a totally different person. You're less confrontational. You're not thinking in a mode like you, you wake up and you have proverbial gun to your head to go perform and all that stuff. To turn that back on, and I had to do it for a couple of weeks after being done mentally, it was jarring. You're like, what the hell? What was I doing all these years? That was a lot of pressure. That was a lot of hard work. And I just don't know when you retire. That's why it's so hard to come back. When a guy sits out, I'm like, damn, good on you to take a year off, see what that was like and decide to go back and do that. Because it's totally unnatural to kind of live that lifestyle.
how quickly did your family get tired of you being around all the time? Ah, I mean, um, they might still be, and I, don't, I think it probably happened pretty fast. But yeah. uh, they got no choice. Like, you know, everything I do, I try to make sure I'm home as much as I can be. I work really hard, but I'm home as much as I can be. And that's why I retired, so I could be around my family. I just didn't want to do that again and move my family somewhere else. A couple looks were out west. I'm like, I'm 34. Like, what am I chasing? Two Super Bowls. I've got two beautiful kids at home, awesome wife, time to like enjoy that. Yeah. And I think that's kind of unique in your situation. So transitioning a little bit, kind of the post-career life, a lot of NFL players and, and really all professional athletes across various sports, most of them, if not the majority of them to some degree, transition into what we'll call like network television or yeah. roles similar to that nature, right? They yeah. do pregame, they do postgame, they do similar type content. Yep. You didn't do that. And part of this, in my opinion, is at least that like podcasts weren't around two decades ago and three yeah. decades ago. And this wasn't something you could do. Yep. But you took a different route and said, I'm not going to go travel to LA. I'm not going to go do these different things and try to do these studio jobs. I'm going to start my own podcast and, and start my own media business, really. What led you down that path and why did you decide that? Honestly, I don't like to travel. I do like to travel, but I don't like sitting on airplanes. I don't like wearing suits. I don't like being away from home and being away from my family. I think that's one of the biggest things. I mean, you talked about, hey, why are you walking away from this game you really like? And why are you turning down an opportunity to still do this thing that can make you some good money and that, that you love? Like you really, I mean, I love football, but I love my family more. And the older you get, your perspectives change. And so like, a lot of the reason when I walk through that door, it would kind of go counter to why I walk through that door to then go hustle for something else. I just got done hustling for something. I can hustle for something. I can work my ass off and I can do it 10 minutes from home. Podcasting is great. It's more long form. It's easier to like really dig in. You know, I love having people on my show. I'm sure you've had some great conversations on here where if you were on a network, that hit is quick. I'm interested in people. I'm interested in like the conversation. I'm interested in that sort of thing. And I've been bossed around for a long time. I don't really want to be bossed around. Anybody that knows me knows it's a bitch to get me to do something I don't want to do. And this gives me all that stuff. I think we have a lot of fun here. We make good content and we have an open mind. So like we're going to have all types of guests on. We're not just having football players on. We're not having athletes on. The season is really exciting because we have three shows a week and we got to pack it and it's a big hustle and we love football. But I love just as much when the season ends. And we got to book out three months of interesting guests that have nothing to do with football. And so that can be a lot of fun too. And I think I get that here and I couldn't get it at a network. Was building this more difficult than you imagined? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, dude. Like yeah. I think this thing might be harder than football in, in a lot of ways. One of the hardest things is all of a sudden you're making decisions and your whole life you've been kind of a fall in line guy. I've always been my own person, but I've never had to, I've had to lead people, but not manage people. So that's a tough part is like, we got a crew here and they work their asses off, but like how to put people in the right positions to succeed, how to produce the content. What do people want to hear? And you don't have any instant gratification. Like when I played football, you make a play on third down, everybody goes nuts. Like it's very cause and effect. Here, you'll do 90 minutes on a podcast or like 60 minutes on a podcast, do an interview and push it out into the world. And you have no idea what people think until you're like some big time podcast where the social interaction is huge. So I think some of it is like being blindfolded, kind of just walking a path. And then also the vulnerability of no one likes their voice as much as we talk for a living. Nobody likes their voice and nobody has the confidence. Well, if you have the confidence to do it, like you're that rare kind of sociopath where, yeah. you know, you're, 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 just, you're probably on TV. You're uh, probably on TV. I could not yeah. do it. And that's another thing is like, if I had to go be on TV, I was the guy when I played where, hey, 
we're gonna go do this photo shoot before the season like for the jumbotron or like for the magazine and they put smoke behind you and they're like make a face and they're like growl and like get in a stance shit like that and i was always the guy was like i literally can't and so like if you want me on tv to get animated about something and by the way like i'm probably not gonna want to be told what to argue when i walk into work in the morning and on top of that i can't manufacture excitement (laughs) just like that's why the podcast is great i can play with my voice to manufacture excitement but i can't do it physically yeah it's a fascinating business or industry whatever you want to call it that kind of spun up because i talk about this all the time like i literally i mean you know i started tweeting I yeah. had a different job. I literally yeah. just started tweeting. I had worked at a sports agency and I was working at JP Morgan at the time on the banking side. So like, it was just two things I was interested in, right. sports and business. And I was like, screw it. I'll just start tweeting. I was tweeting. And then I started a newsletter. I started the podcast. I'm doing all these different things. And it's like a blessing and a curse because you can quickly scale things and you can get bigger and you can do all these different things. But I don't think to your point about like managing people and actually the business side, like people understand how much goes into a lot of this stuff, yeah. right? Like not only from the content of producing everything, but getting it out, managing employees, making sure everyone's doing kind of what they need to do. It's difficult. Or right? not, and, just not being a shitty boss. I mean, yeah. like we joke all the time. I joke about being a shitty boss all the time. Like I'm half joking, but it's tough to like figure out this side of things. I have no business background. I'm a business infant, you know? So as you scale things, like you have to make decisions and you have to like help people along the way or put people in the right positions. And I've made mistakes and just trying to learn from that stuff. That's been like one of the most illuminating things. That's been one of the biggest person development deals that I've had to go through just doing this. So you grow as a person. Also, it drove me to hate Twitter so much. I deleted it off my phone in the last three weeks. So my life is better. Oh, you must be having a great three weeks here. It's the best, dude. And you got good tweets. But if I can get off not- for 24 hours, Chris, I'm happy. All right. Yeah. Like if I can just close down for 12, 24 hours, I'm good for the day. Take the uh, challenge, show. Take the it's challenge. Difficult. Take the like the two week challenge. Your fog is going to clear up. Expand. Yeah. yeah. So how do you think about the business side of this, right? Because I don't know exactly what year you started necessarily, but over the last, we'll call it 12 to 24, maybe even 36 months here, like the business side of the content has really exploded in my yeah. opinion. So there's obviously the Pat McAfee's of the world who everyone saw his numbers, Dan Levitard, everyone's seen yeah. his numbers, right? Like there's stuff that's public out there. Sports gambling is obviously one piece of it of like, hey, these customers are extremely expensive to acquire. How can we do it cheaper? Content is a really good avenue for that. So I think it's opened up an opportunity for people that are creating content online to really form big businesses. Did you know this going in or was this something of like, hey, this is just what I'm interested in. And then you realize later on, hey, I can make some good money on this also. Well, I think what you want shifts as you enter the, the arena of this whole thing. So like you think you know what you want, but experience is the best teacher. And like we came out wanting to do this big podcast network where we'd rope people in and kind of you know interesting perspectives and that sort of thing and have people do like like the, like the ringer or something like that not not scaled to that level but like start yeah. small you know what i mean like yeah. i don't want to that sounds like the most intimidating worst thing in the world like to manage a bunch of stuff like that and be responsible for what everybody says on their podcast and that sort of thing like I think as I've gone along, I've realized that like, hey, I love this podcast. There's enough stuff that we have to do to scale this. And whether the live watches or our YouTube stuff or getting other people involved, bringing different people into the fold, like Pat has a great little family of people that go back and forth with him. He's got AJ. I've got my co-host Macon, who, you know, is a buddy of mine from home. I've got an old teammate who helps out, Dr. Fax. We've got, you know, Matt, Reed. We've got Taylor in the building and like, Ralph doing socials and so 
there's just so much to do. It's like, let's just crush this and like knock this out of the park with an attitude that like wherever the business goes, we'll get there. What we need to do is connect with people and build an audience that feels like they're part of that family. And then we can kind of branch out from there. So I truly, and you know, it's not a cop out and it's not like anybody's cares, but I'm pretty open-minded on the business side. Like this is what we're doing today. I want to grow this podcast to be a huge thing. And I want people to feel like they're part of a family and I want to have fun and do live watches and all the fun shit and the content creation, but I'll never be like a TikTok guy. Yeah, actually, we are signing up for TikTok, but (laughs) I'll never be a TikTok guy where I'm like, oh, got to go do this. I'm like really trying to do less social media stuff, but I want to make more good content. So it's just focusing on that, honing in on that. And hey, people talk about is podcasting going to be around in the same scale in 10 years? Like, I don't give a shit. I've got this group and we've got content to make. We have a good time and we love what we do. And then if the market shifts to something else, we'll hit the curveball and just communicate through that medium. I don't really think about the like the macro business stuff, which could be foolish, but I try to take things one day at a time and enjoy like, hey, let's hit this out of the park on Tuesday, on Wednesday and like live in that foxhole, which can get frustrating. Uh, you know, we put out a lot of content. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, not that you care at all at what my opinion is on it, but uh, I do because you pay more attention to this stuff. Like you're like on the business side of things like me. I'm yeah. I'm just a damn guy in a chair with a microphone. So well, my, my overarching point with a lot of this stuff is like, there's no right answer. Yeah. And what I mean by that, right. Is like, there's a million different ways to make money. There's people on YouTube making a killing. There's people that do just podcasts, making a killing. There's people that have the network that are making a killing. And like, Pat's a good example because he's obviously super talented. I think he's probably one of the most talented people in sports media for sure. But he runs what I would call a big business, not only from a revenue perspective, but he's got a number of employees, but it's not necessarily this massive network or company or whatever, right? They have their studio and they do a bunch of different shows and they they make a bunch of content. Like look how big his business is, right? So it can get massive depending on kind of how much you want to scale that. But there's a million ways to do it. You can look at YouTube channels and these guys are making millions of dollars a year just off of making videos, Yeah, one video a week. So I think it depends. But all right, I want to jump into some of the charity work you're doing. Yeah. I don't know who knows this that's listening to this. I wrote about it in my newsletter. Thank you Uh, for that too. Of course. So what Chris is thanking me for here is Chris runs a charity. It's the Chris Long Foundation is the overarching, I believe, foundation or holding company. And one of the assets underneath is the Water Boys, which is a charity work within Tanzania where you are bringing clean, accessible water to people in Eastern Africa. Yeah. So first off, I think people should know that you were, I don't know what year it was, but I think you were the NFL Walter Payton Man of the Year. Yeah. Voted one year. Yeah. Uh-huh. It was like 2019. I think it was the, yeah. Okay. So 2019. Yeah. So let's talk about kind of how this all started and maybe let's start at the foundation. Then we can work our way down to the water boys and just talk about kind of charity in general, yeah. why you started getting so active into yeah. it and what you guys are doing today. Yeah, no question. It is CLF, Chris Long Foundation, and we do a lot of educational equity work. We do most of our domestic work in educational equity, and then we do most of our, in fact, all of our international work on water. So that's actually was the first project we had. When I was in my fifth, sixth year, I went to Tanzania to do what you're about to do and climb Kilimanjaro and you'll crush it. But I wanted to do something different. I wanted to challenge and Jeff Fisher had just gotten hired and he had a picture on his desk. It was like him climbing a mountain. And I was like, where is that? And because I like to hike and climb and trek and he's like Tanzania. And I'm like, there's snow on the ground. What the fuck? And he's like, yeah, well, it's way up a mountain it's mount kilimanjaro and i was like i've seen that i was like i'd like to do that he's like yeah one day you should 
And I was like, yeah, I might do it in like the off season. He's like, dude, I just paid you. Let's tone it down a notch. But then when he realized there's nothing in my contract, I decided to go. I took a teammate, James Hall. We had an awesome time and came down the mountain, ran into some guys that were doing water work, planted the seed for the idea. And I said, like, if I spent my whole career thinking about where to get started, what cause to champion or get behind, I'm going to waste my entire career. And I had operated most of my career as like, I do things quietly. I don't want to be the look at me guy. Well, you're being kind of selfish doing that because you're leaving a lot of money on the table for whatever the cause of choice is because you're not using fans and fans are the biggest lifeblood we have in sports. And so I decide to form a foundation. I go to Tanzania. It's all happening at the same time. And I say, hey, you know what? Pragmatically, I love working in clean water because of a lot of the ways that you can transform a community and the easy to prove results and metrics. So what is the problem, just so people are kind of level yeah. set and familiar, the yeah. problem is that the no one has accessible to water right now, right? It's dirty water or they have to walk very far to find clean That's water. right. In Tanzania and, and a lot of places in the quote unquote third world, people frame it as like developing countries. You're going to have a lot of people who are drinking from really, really contaminated water or just dirty water. A lot of people in a lot of these Maasai villages that will service will be walking 10 miles in a day, five miles in a day. It's arid. You'll reach the watering hole, like when you go to a village and reach the watering hole, and it'll be brown, like it's brown. There's animals defecating in it. Like enough said, like this is just not water that any human being should be drinking. And yet children are drinking this water. Adults in the village are drinking this water. Everyone's sick, perpetually kind of fighting off waterborne illness and diarrhea kills kids in sub-Saharan Africa. And so if it's not the waterborne illness, it can just be dehydration. So this is like something that defines their way of life too. I mean, think about the fact that like when you have water to fetch, even if it's dirty water, like you have to carve out time for people to go gather this water. So it's a productivity suck. It kills children, it kills people, and it keeps women and girls in a really tough situation because that work always falls on the shoulder of women and girls in Sub-Saharan Africa and other places around the world. And so women and girls aren't in school. They're not contributing to society the way that they could. And agriculture is stifled. So I just hit like education, agriculture, even if it's not enough that people are dying, you know what I mean? <laughs> Which, you should, Which never have to, yeah. you should never have to make that sell outside that. But if you're a pragmatist, if you, if you want to see, you know, communities thriving economically, educationally, like it touches every corner of reality for these folks. And so like, we just started doing large solar powered wells. We found a partner in WorldServe that we've worked with for a number of years, and we've done over a hundred now. These are large solar powered wells serving five to 7,000 people. And you see these results pretty quickly when it comes to the work we do with water boys and we've done conquering Kelly, which is the climb that you're going on that a lot of veterans former players and you know like we also have some people like yourself joe who are like people with the megaphone and who are good at raising money and getting the message out and we come together and we do that and we do it every year and it's been a lot of fun like i don't climb every year but i've done it four or five times it is a lot easier the first time. <laughs> and I think you're gonna have a lot of fun, man. We do a lot of different work. Now we do hometown H2O. So we do a lot of domestic work as well. Yeah. So first off, I appreciate the compliment there about raising money. I don't think I'm necessarily more talented at it than someone else, but there's people that decide to read my newsletter for some reason. So. Hey, you hustle, man. You uh, hustle. That's a good quality, bro. Like that's why people read your stuff because you, you hustle for the information and you get it out there and you put it in a term that I can understand it. So judging by me, if I can understand your stuff, it's not over my head. That's pretty good. 
Yeah, that's how I try to explain things typically. Not necessarily based on your IQ, but yeah. someone else. <laughs> yeah. No. All right. So for some background information, we're going to be climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Yeah. This is one of the avenues that you guys use to raise money. You've done some work with the NFL. You've done work with the NBA players. And you kind of do a bunch of different things to go and raise money. The end goal, obviously, like you said before, is to install more wells. Yeah. So let's talk through. I'm selfishly going to ask you some questions mm-hmm. so I can prepare myself here. Yeah. With the base knowledge that I have done minimal, if any, climbing in my life, I currently live in Miami. Right. So there's no mountains nearby. Yep. When I sent out the email on my newsletter saying, Hey, this is what I'm going to go be doing. This is the challenge. This is what we're trying to do. I got a bunch of people that responded. Mm-hmm. And the advice ranged everywhere from go on a treadmill on max incline and just go for hours mm-hmm. to strap on the book bag, fill it with 50 pounds, go as many stairs as you possibly can. Yeah. I'm assuming you were climbing it maybe one or two years afterwards, but you did it during your NFL career. I did. Yeah. So your strength was probably, and your stamina was probably much higher uh, than the average climber, I would there assume. There you go. Yes. Yeah, that's part of it. But what is the best piece of advice, I guess, to actually making it up the mountain? Listen, have you walked up a hill before, Joe? Yeah, a couple okay. times. Okay, so you could just do that a thousand times in a row, and it's just a big hill. It's You know, it's just a big hill. It's just a big, tall hill. And as you get higher, the air gets thinner, and that's when it gets a little dicey and Listen, like the success rate on this mountain's pretty it's pretty high. I think it's like probably just above two out of three people make it to the top. But in our groups, generally we're batting almost a thousand. I mean, over eight hundred because of the caliber of the athletes, much like yourself, Joe. So like we have a lot of great <laughs> athletes. We he's, he's coughing already. He's he's thinking about breathing heavily <laughs> yeah. on the mountain. But like we have a lot of great athletes that push each other and like you're gonna be in good company. I think half of it is having the mentality that like, hey, I'm here a while. I'm gonna be climbing for a week up and down this mountain. It's gonna be cold at night. It's gonna be dirty. You're not gonna eat food. You're not gonna be able to go to, I don't know what your favorite restaurant is in Miami. But if you strip it down and stop looking at your watch, it is a really good opportunity to get away and just turn everything off because there's no cell phone service. You're gonna have a sat phone up there to call somebody if you really need to. And I just think embrace the opportunity of like, we're out here. We're just going to turn our brains off, walk, enjoy each other, and push each other. And the last night is really tough. I like to warn people. It's the Jason Kelsey rule. So Jason Kelsey went with me one year, and we've become really good friends. And I love Jason. He wears his emotions on his sleeve. And his emotions, his mood ring was not white and bright when he was on his way down from the top of the mountain. He made it to the top. I had just got done pushing Haloti Nada up the mountain like a Ford Ranger because he had to retire. He had the retirement banner in his backpack, so we had to get him to the top. He got to the top. Everybody's exhausted. Everybody else is like ahead of us. We get down to the tent, and Jason is like fuming. I see like steam coming out of his ears, and I walk in the tent, and he's like, well, first I'm like, what's your problem, dude? And he's like, you did not tell me it was going to be that difficult. You know, like he's just kind of like throwing a toddler tantrum jason kelsey is a fucking beast he is a beast (laughs) yeah (laughs) but not everybody has the same experience on the mountain you know what i mean and that last night is really hard and it sneaks up on you because of the first four or five days it's not a walk in the park but you can do it it's just committing to i'm walking for eight ten hours a day and i'm going to be winded constantly and your heart rate's going to be higher than normal so don't freak out like your heart rate's higher my resting heart rate's under 60 you know it's in the 50s and I'm sitting at 85 up there. I'm looking at my watch like, am I dying? Like, no, it's just your body can handle it. Your mind can handle it. Like you can do it. And I always have to give you the Jason Kelsey speech because 
I told him, I go, did you check the brochures? Like, didn't I send you information? You know, this mountain is 19,341 feet high. I gave you all the information, dude. Like I'm tired. Shut up, you know? (laughs) And he threw a little fit and we made up later, but I went around the room and I was like, did you get the brochure? Connor Barwin, did you get the brochure? He's like, I got the brochure. (laughs) So you knew what you were getting into. basically. Like, like, dude, we gave you the information. It's going to be hard the last day, but the rest of the time you're going to have and even that last day, because I really believe you do. I'm not on some like David Goggins shit, like, because yeah. he just, <laughs> he's on another level. Yeah. But I do think that you need to challenge yourself and like kind of see where the bottom is for you. And I think that last night you'll see where the bottom is a little bit, but otherwise it's easy. Chris, my dad posted about it on LinkedIn. I can't not make it up the mountain now. There, <laughs> yeah, once it's on LinkedIn, it is, so it is. <laughs> I got my dad bragging to his friends. I'm going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. So, well, if he doesn't uh, follow up with a follow up brag, then they know what time it is. Yeah, they know what happened. <laughs> the only part I'm look, I'm certainly not squatting 600 pounds or doing this stuff, but You'll I'm good, moderately dude. athletic, right? So, my main concern is the altitude. Is that something to be worried about or no? Because, like everything I read, right, from my point of view is hey, sometimes you just can't do anything about the altitude, right? And that's the one thing that I think people would probably get concerned about is if I can't do anything about it, then what am I supposed to do? Well, it's it's very few things do we face where we're like, I don't know. That's the thing that sucks about it. The altitude is a real factor. It's really the real factor. I mean, like, this is something that anybody who's walked in the woods before or like has exercised or has works at this thing can do. But the wild card is the altitude. We've had really in shape dudes like former green berets like in in the building before doing this thing and and have had to turn around because they get sick and i got sick one year you know i got sick one year because i was wiped out it was too close to the super bowl and i went i was wiped out i probably wasn't hydrated i probably wasn't eating right what you eat is important like you're not going to be hungry some days you're going to kind of feel sick some days like you might wake up and just feel a little eh. you got to force it down and then it's Diamox is the medicine that people tell you to take, like altitude medicine, because it relieves some of the symptoms of altitude sickness. What they should tell you is a diuretic too. What that means is you're pissing more. So like in, in the middle of the night, getting up to go to the bathroom at 15,000 feet sucks. You're just like, oh my God. The advice was someone said to bring a pee bottle because they said that you won't want to get out of the tent when it's cold out in the middle of the night. Yeah. I brought like basically a helium balloon. Like I just had strapped to my back because I was like, you know, I need a couple gallons because all you're doing is drinking because you need to do that. But the more Diamox you take, the more you kind of express what's inside and then you're dehydrated and your head pounds and i remember one year being so sick i had such a bad headache i every time i stood up i had to lay back down like i'm not a migraine guy yeah i don't get headaches so it sucked i had to be on oxygen most years i'm great it's just your diet matters your hydration like paying attention to little things being prepared and then just it's a crapshoot at the end of the day And obviously the climb is the main focal point of this trip, but is there anything that you've done kind of, I know you've gone to the camps, you've seen the wells being installed, you've done all these different things. Is there anything that you have to do while you're over there that's not necessarily related to the mountain? Listen, the the village visits, which hopefully you guys are going to see some projects. That's why we're there. You know, like we've had a number of people on this trip that, hey, they love the, the climb they go nuts for the climb. But what they probably didn't expect was like how the the work would strike them and going to a school. I always tell the story about these Marines that we had who join us and they've been all over the world. They've seen some real hardship and we're at a school where they go down the hill and the kids are showing us where the thousand kids in this primary school are drinking water from. And it's a creek that runs through an urban area that kicks out by the school. It's got gasoline film on the top. It's got trash. 
and oil cans. Like these kids are just scooping the water, going up and drinking. I can't overstate how disturbing that is to see, but also how inspiring it can be to see what the solutions do. Then we'll take you to see a place where we've installed a project. And I think we take water for granted so much that even when somebody tells you, it's hard to believe. And then when you talk to somebody who actually lives with those realities, it comes through in kind of, hey, like what you're doing actually makes a difference. And so you'll have those experiences and it'll validate everything you're doing. The important part is meeting some awesome people because there are some cool people in Tanzania. There are some really vibrant people in Tanzania. There's some brilliant people in Tanzania, like Maasai tribesmen who speak like eight languages, resourceful, cool as hell. So you'll love the place. The safaris are awesome. I saw, I think, a leopard or a cheetah kill something a couple of years ago. That was pretty lit. <laughs> it's a sweet, it's an awesome trip, man. There's some awesome people, and there's also a lot of people that you're going to help. Yeah, I'm excited, man. For me, like, I didn't even have to go there. I read about it, and I was like, some of the stats jumped out. I forget the exact number, so maybe you know more than me, but I think it was like one in five people suffer from the inability to have find clean, accessible water or even die from it, right? Yep. So it's impacting millions of people. And I think what you are doing and continue to do is fantastic. So uh, Thanks, for me, it was just trying to get involved, right? And help where I can. And if I can leverage the audience that like to read what I write or or listen to what I say, if I can leverage them in any capacity possible to help, I was happy to do that. Well, that's cool as hell, man. This stuff is awesome. And another thing is it restores your damn faith in people. And like, anytime a bunch of people get together and try to do something, you know, like actually like, let's go do something with our time and something productive with it. I love meeting people like you, Joe, and all the people you're going to meet on this climb. So it's super cool. All right, man, I'm going to let you go. Before I do, where can people find out? Let's start with your media stuff, the podcast and everything like that. Where can they find it? What's it called, et cetera? So Greenlight Pod, and we actually just launched a website. It's Greenlight Pod, Greenlight Podcast. My producer's like podcast, okay? So you see me on the business <laughs> side. I don't even know how to plug my own podcast. So you know I'm- You're what authentic. You, You're what real you here. see is what you get, but yeah. podcast, greenlightpodcast.com. We're on Apple, Spotify, and the whole thing. And then we've got- a Chris Long Foundation website that's coming out actually in the next couple weeks. It should be out soon. It's like something we've been working really hard on, chrislongfoundation.org. And then you can follow us on social channels as well. Yeah, that's excellent. Thank you. The one thing I'll say too is I don't want to pump you up too much here before we leave, but there's very few people in my mind that do like the career really well, the kind of the business stuff afterwards really well, and the charity work really well. And you're someone that has done that. So congratulations. Thanks, to you man. I never thought you... about that. Well, that hopefully it's going well then. Thanks. Yeah, you can cut that. You could put that on somewhere and <laughs> well, say, hey. We're going gonna to put that like on the front door of our office and it's just on loop. <laughs> this guy said that I was a good person. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm serious. I appreciate everything you're doing and we'll have to do it again soon. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for everybody out there that uh, considered looking at what we do. Oh, yeah. And if you want to read more about the story and why I'm doing it, go on the newsletter. And you can read it. There's a donation page if you want to get involved. Thank you all Thanks, so Chris. much. All right, Joe. See you.